Hello. Hello, John. Hello, Dan Benjamin. How's everything going? Well, it's a little surreal. I, I, uh, you know, I set an alarm to wake <laughs> uh, wake me up in the morning, and uh-huh. my alarm went off this morning at the regular time, which was ten thirty, mm-hmm. um, because we do this show at eleven, and I don't want too much time to wake up. No, you don't want to be too awake for the show. No. So ten thirty, it went off. I got up. I got some coffee. I looked at the clock that hangs on the wall. Uh-huh. Nothing was amiss. No. Came downstairs, you know, read a couple of emails, and then I was like, right at the top of the hour, I said, all right, you know, what's up, Dan? Ready to go? And you were like, it's an hour before we normally record. <laughs> right. And I can't account for it at all. The, the alarm, I looked at the alarm. It was set for 1030. So what happened at 930, Dan? Right. It's sort of like the opposite of missing time when you get like abducted by the aliens and you're like, I was standing in my living room and now I'm in my neighbor's backyard and I'm wearing different clothes and I don't know what happened. And for you, it's the opposite. Yeah. I I absolutely gained an hour and I have no idea. I was like, honestly, when I said to you, is it daylight savings time? Right. It was the only thing that, uh, that could explain because I don't have an alarm on my phone that goes off at nine 30. No. So what, why would I do that? Are you sure that you woke up to an alarm or could you have just woken up naturally? Did your alarm still go off an hour later or what? I don't know. I do, I, honestly, Dan, I don't know. Did I dream my alarm? Mm. And it's just like, okay, I guess it's time to get up. You were just so not. excited to do the show that you <laughs> yes. woke yourself up. We haven't done road work in, <coughs> we have not done road work on a regular schedule in a long time. Yeah, it's been like a month. And I have been very excited to do the show. So maybe that was it. Maybe there's a lot going on over here. You know, mm-hmm. it's, been, it's been an active yeah. month, but also like today uh, is a day that, uh, that the, the house has been kind of gearing up for my daughter's mother's company is, has been acquired by a British venture capital group. And it's, and there's a lot of, upheaval and board meetings and downsizings and and a lot of stress around here uh, associated with that and today is some big watershed moment in that transition and and so you know my daughter's mother is an executive and so responsible for a lot of uh, the a lot of the good and the bad, and she just learned yesterday that her boss is going away, and so, so now she's, a promotion. Well, it's a thing. <laughs> it's a thing that is so amazing about the corporate world now. I've always said that that this company and most companies now are so top heavy. There's, you know, in a company of a hundred people, there should be, in my estimation, no one at the C level. There should be a president and two vice presidents and then managers. You know, that's how it used to be. My mom worked at a company that had, that had what, 7,000 employees and there was a president and like two vice presidents and then a bunch of like high level managers, not a bunch, you know, six managers. And then, so, you know, the, these companies that have 100 people and they have a CFO and a CMO and a CTO 
and uh, you know the the board not even the board it's just like the meeting i mean seriously if you're a c level executive mm-hmm. and you have two or three vice presidents th- these terms become meaningless you know hmm. and so what happened is uh, someone at the c level disappears and now uh my daughter's mother and she is she absolutely wants me to stipulate to people that she does not like that she does not like being described as my daughter's mother she feels like i should describe her as as my partner okay and uh, so but it's but partner is a very hard word for me to say in any context even describing you as my partner in road work mm-hmm. the word partner just has Runs just the wrong way or something really does it just in the 1970s, one of the earliest porn magazines that I was exposed to, this was, you know, in the 70s, right? We Most of the porn that we saw was in the form of some 60s Playboys that we found in a cardboard box yep. in the woods, yep. right? Sounds right, yep. And so a lot of the original sort of, it's not even porn. A lot of the original, just the first naked people I ever saw were these girls with beehive hairdos <laughs> who only showed their boobs. Right. And they usually were, you know, like next to a swimming pool or playing ping pong or something. But the first 70s style porn mm. that I ever saw, which was basically like the type of magazine that Hawkeye Pierce would get, you know, like... <laughs> um. Which was, which was like oh nudism, God. you know? <laughs> right. Like, it wasn't so much to, to, uh, titillate. Is that a word? Titillate. titillate? I would think yeah. I was combining scintillate yes. and titillate. I don't know. Uh, yes, you were. That was, a, that was very <laughs> it's good. It's a new, a new <laughs> word. Those, it was sort of like, almost like doc, a documentary in a way. Mm-hmm. Uh-huh. Except that this magazine so there's nudist magazines where people are playing volleyball. <laughs> this was a magazine that was <laughs> set in San Francisco of the of 1979. Mm-hmm. And San Francisco in 1979 was a you know had fully embraced the kind of uh, original sex positive but very seedy um you know, like there was a, there was, was a, uh, sex worker culture there. There was a, a, um, like a, a, a queer culture, but also a kind of, uh, what, like a, there was latex culture. All that stuff was in its infancy, kind of, it had been going on I, l- many years later in the, uh, in the nineties, um, I got to know, uh, the son here in Seattle of Bob Crane, the star of Hogan's Heroes. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. And Bob Crane's son um, is a or was a Seattle guy, and um, and was it was active in the music business and actually bought a bought a studio here, and it was a studio that I partly recorded friendly or I'm sorry beep <laughs> partly recorded the second and no 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 the second long winters record 
we made at least half of it um, at Scotty Crane's studio here in Seattle. And Scotty's just a clever, interesting guy, and he was actually kind of part of the uh, Bob Crane documentary, the the revisiting Bob Crane's life. And Bob Crane, I think, if you recall, sort of famously was um, like a real sex. No, no relation to Fraser Crane in no. Seattle. Oh, although maybe Fraser Crane, maybe that was a hat tip. That's what I'm to wondering. Bob Crane. But he uh, and you know, and Bob Crane died uh, in a um, in a violent way, and you know he had been kind of like this lovable, uh, lovable character in, uh, in the culture, and then all of a sudden, you know, he was like murdered, and it came out that he was, um, you know, that he made homemade sex movies and was part of a sex, a whole underground sex culture. And in, in the studio that Scotty Crane owned here in Seattle, there were like these wonderful old black and white photos of gatherings of people for like spanking parties, (laughs) guys with, with curly mustaches wearing ascots and like velvet suits who were, uh, you know, sort of taking turns. Wait, this paddling. is all still still one magazine. No, no, no. This th- these were just these were one off photographs in frames that were hanging around the the studio <laughs> okay. that were just you know in between guitar <laughs> takes you'd go over and study one of these photographs. Yeah, yeah you would taken in the fifties or whatever of like women dressed as housefrau's being paddled by men in velvet suits. Sure, and everyone seems to be just having the time of their lives. It's clearly a cocktail party, you know. Anyway, these these uh, these original magazines where that that were, I think that my friend Greg Burns and Greg had an older brother, and these were magazines that his older brother had collected, and Greg, you know, got them to me. But they were, again, as you were saying, not tintillating, um, because. <laughs> They were they were basically like, hey, this is what's going on in the scene right now, except instead of being about like model trains, they were about people that get together to have public sex with one another oh. in bars. Oh. <clears throat> and how difficult that is because the, the San Francisco cops keep shutting it down. And when are people going to learn when are the cops going to get off our back so that we can do what we want to do, which is have public sex in bars. <laughs> and then, you know, and then the next article is about, um, you know, like how to give your partner a tattoo, <laughs> uh, you know, just like really, uh, eye opening to me as a 10 year old. Yeah. Uh, because these were definitely, no one had a beehive hairdo. Most this was this is very much more like a denim um, thing, and a lot of the people were like <clears throat> missing one of their eye teeth. Uh, it was rough, and this magazine was called Partner Magazine, and it didn't think of itself as tough. Partner was not; it wasn't like a biker culture thing. Partner really was like, "Hey, do you and your partner like to have sex with each other?" 
Well, how about, have you ever tried having sex while other people were there? Have you ever tried having sex with your neighbor while your neighbor's having sex with your partner? <laughs> like, well, here's an article about it. And, and as a kid who was scandalized by, um, even seeing soft focus college co-eds in, uh, in like tight, fuzzy sweaters, this was like, oh, oh, wow. Okay. And you know, like O'Farrell's theater in San Francisco, which is down in the tenderloin and it's all, it's been, always been like a, you know, it's like a, a, a strip, strip club, but kind of like a, uh, it's an icon of both San Francisco and of the, like the larger world of above ground, uh, sex work. Mm -hmm. And O'Farrell's is still there. But at the time, like partner magazine had this big spread on O'Farrell's and like all the, what a cool place it was. And like, you should come to San Francisco and hang out at O'Farrell's cause we're, cause like you can see, you can, you know, you can be whoever you want to be. And just in the last few years, when I started first dating millennium girlfriend mm -hmm. and she lived in San Francisco, right? I was reintroduced to San Francisco sex culture in the sense that that all still is happening, except now it's a tech culture thing. And the tech people who are rich and who don't know how to feel things <laughs> have either like, I think reinvigorated this culture and, and, and it's definitely tied to S and M BD S and M. Mm -hmm. Uh, but there are big, big, like public sex events in San Francisco that, that are, that, that feel like an eyes wide shut kind of thing. Oh, right. Where a bunch of, did you get to go to some of these? Have you been to these? Well, I mean, you couldn't say if you had. I did, there was a, there was a place called, what was it called? The dungeon or the castle or something. Uh -huh. <laughs> there was some, there was actually some big place like an event space, but also in bars or not, you know, like, like, like events where it was, you know, where you had a ticket or you came and what it was, was a room full of people fully clothed, um, uh, in their, you know, in nice clothes watching some, not just a sex scene, but like a, like a humiliation scene. Mm. Like there's that aspect of, of public sex in the, in that world. That's about like, Oh, the, well, this isn't just about sex. This is about, we're going to shame this person in front of everyone in the room. And we're all gonna, I don't, I, I don't know if it's like get off on it. I'm not sure it's quite that it's a different kind of getting off. It's mm -hmm. like, getting off on some psychological head trip shit around sex. And you know, my experience of it is that at, at one level, the people that are at that event are telling themselves that they are really open-minded about stuff and that they are, they're, um, they're part of a subculture of smart 
and talented and rich people that are like into some connoisseurship of sex of like uh, uh, alt sex but at, at another level um, my experience of it was like wow you are a bunch of really f- super like everybody here is really super fucked up um, <laughs> it, it, in the sense that uh, yeah, uh, this is this is kind of sewership, right? We're 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 basically wearing velvet suits and at a spanking party, except uh, the hardcoreness of it is what's supposed to make it cyberpunk almost. And um, <laughs> I felt a couple of times like saying, "Hey, everybody, it's a lot simpler than this." It's you know like. It's, it's really, it's not this hard. Mm -hmm. You don't have to go through all this. (laughs) Um, but you know, but I came up in, in the early nineties in that like, uh, circus sideshow. I wasn't, I was, I was about to say I was in that culture. I wasn't in that culture exactly, but I went to a lot of events Mm -hmm. where people were being suspended on hooks by their nipples. And, and there was a lot of that kind of, um, you know, the, the, the original sort of body manipulation culture that was shocking to us then. And I think would be shocking now, uh, because it's just like startling. It's, it's anyway, that's why I don't like to use the word partner. Oh, of course. It's just connected to in, in a, in, at a very young age, well, not very young, but 10 years old, got connected to O'Farrell's theater, weirdly. In the, in, there's just a direct connection. Every time I'm in the Tenderloin and I walk past it, I'm like, oh yeah, partner. But, you know, also, I don't know if you've ever seen this photograph. I saw this picture just the other day. There's a picture of Led Zeppelin Mm -hmm. and they're clearly at an, at a record label sponsored event because they're being presented with four what look like gold or platinum albums for the sale of what I'm assuming is Led Zeppelin two. And the, so the four gold records are lined up in front of the stage. And then there are two people having sex on the floor. (laughs) Like at the, at the award ceremony, right on the stage here, the four (laughs) records are there. Then like one foot behind them, there are two people having sex. And I mean, having sex where her, her feet are fully in the air (laughs) and he is like really going for it. And then standing right there, one foot behind them Mm -hmm. are the members of Led Zeppelin who are there in their rock clothes, standing in a line and kind of like laughing and talking to each other. Like, Hey, you know, I think a couple of them are like, get a load of this. And then a couple of them are talking about Aleister Crowley or something like completely this is just another day in the life of Led Zeppelin. And when I saw that picture, I was like, oh, right, Partner Magazine. People just having, I was like, how do we make this gold record ceremony fun for Led Zeppelin? I know, let's get a couple of people to just like have sex there on the stage. Right, like that's yeah. that's rock and roll, right? Yeah, sure. Yeah, I mean, and, and I, I think for the time period and Led Zeppelin in general being kind of you know, the stories that kind of surrounded them and their exploits. Right. It would seem like that would be the thing that, um, that they would do. 
Yeah, you don't see that as much anymore. Although, you know what, Dan, I'm no longer even adjacent to San Francisco BDSM tech culture. Uh-huh. And so I'm sure it's just I'm sure it's just chortling right along. Yeah, yeah, it probably <laughs> is. Yeah. Yeah, I don't I didn't sure you know, what, I went to some of our the, listeners the, know about it. I'm sure they do. The party where I met Millennium Girlfriend, which was put on by all those guys, Ev Williams and and Elon Musk, they were all at this party. And there were naked Cirque du Soleil acrobats hanging from the ceiling throughout the whole party. You walk around from room to room and it's like, oh, there's like three naked people doing a trapeze act. And it, 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 yeah, it feels like conspicuous consumption almost. Like, like the... Naked people having sex is a decorative element if you're rich enough. Uh, hmm. I'm not. Sh- I, I'm not sure. I mean, I guess if you're rich enough. If it was me, I would buy the. I would buy the SS United States and rehabilitate it and park it off the coast of. Uh, well, yeah, I'd park it out in the middle of New York Harbor. And just have uh, every night just have a huge fireworks display. Um, if I if I had that kind of money, I wouldn't have. I wouldn't have a bunch of naked people spanking each other. Maybe uh-huh. I would. And maybe I, don't know, you, I think feel like you'd get to a point where you would. Yeah, I don't I think, think it starts right. that way. But then that's where you wind up eventually. If you if you stick with it long enough, you never start out doing that. Yes, you know. And I think it's like it's like making your first, you know. Like plastic model kit as a kid, you want to get, you know, Knight Rider and you're going to make Knight Rider and you're like, oh, but those airplanes or those mecha that transform like that's that battleship I'll never. And then like three years later, you're like painting the battleship, you know? Yes. yes. I think it's you never start out planning for that. It just happens. I think you're right. And I have always not always, but as as I've grown older, I have uh, I've spent as a as a rock musician, right? You're always not far from the culture of sex work mm-hmm. because it's just your community, the people that are in bars in the middle of the night, the people that are making rock music, the people that are doing sex work. We're very akin to one another in a lot of ways, and we end up together a lot of times, right? The the and I'm not just talking about like L.A. in the '80s where the connection between strippers and rock musicians was, you know, was so strong mm-hmm. as sex work evolved to be much more, well, in Seattle, especially like much more feminist and much more, um, you know, like the, the, um, the preference became more and more for real people in sex work and not, not teased hair, but like, cool girls uh and and rock and roll was evolving too like the the relationship stayed or you know is ever 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 thus uh just because there's more there's more in common than than you would think uh, until you think about it for one second or until you're part of the culture so i was introduced to sex work from that perspective and was um, you know, and 
those were my friends and those were the girls that I dated and those were the people at the shows and those were who I was with, right? And so I got uh, schooled a lot in like what the, a long time before sex positivism became part of the above ground sense of what we, you know, were trying to achieve. Mm -hmm. Like within alternative culture, it was um, above grounded a lot earlier because it was just who we were. And so, you know, I was naturally, I think, a prudish kid and had to go step by step, like happens to us all when we come to come to the big city from smaller towns or just from small town mentalities. Uh, you know, every day there's a new thing where you're like, huh, all right, well, I never thought I would be here, but like, yes, I am. And, and, and I, and I feel, I feel fine. I feel safe and fine. And I like these people. And so whatever my problem was, I guess it had more to do with me than it did with, with, with what I thought it had to do with. Um, and so, you know, I'm, I'm, I think I'm naturally sort of maybe even evolved through the partner magazine universe, <laughs> but without realizing it because that, because that image of O'Farrell's theater in 1979 was so baked into a little, a little capsule in my head that, that even being part of it in the part of what it had evolved into in the nineties, I didn't make the association. I was just like, well, yeah, but like Seattle does not have like a nudist volleyball community, nor do we have, you know, like a Led Zeppelin record ceremony style, um, blase mentality about public sex. But, you know, I think, I think in the gay culture here in Seattle, of course, or everywhere, that's much more public sex is much more a, a component, right. Of the bathhouse culture. Mm-hmm. Anyway, Dan, it's been a weird couple of weeks. Yeah. And, uh, and so today, especially around here at the house, um, my partner is having a tough day and it's, it's not a, uh, it's not bad. You know, it's part and parcel of being a middle-aged professional, mm-hmm. I guess that, that different kinds of stress arrive that aren't, it's not, it's not panic stress. It's not stress that you don't feel like you can deal with. It's just like actual stress. And in her case, the sea level person above her is gone. And now she's reporting directly to the CEO. And I am like, that's wonderful because that means you're in the room and that means you're learning, you know, you're there mm-hmm. at the strategy level, mm-hmm. which is where you want to be. Yeah. You don't want to be hearing about strategy from, you know, third hand. You want to be sitting there. But what it means is from her perspective, like she just inherited like four new jobs. Mm, right. And with a lot of uncertainty surrounding them also. Right. Yeah. Right. Where it's like, oh, there used to be someone, I mean, uh, not very long ago, which is to say two days ago, mm-hmm. 
there was perceived to be a need for a C-level person here. Mm-hmm. And that person's now gone, but the nature of the business did not change. Mm-hmm. Like they didn't fire that person in or not fire, but you know, whatever happens to someone at a sea level, they don't get fired. Do they, they get, they go on to live in, uh, in Lothlorien. But, but the, it's not like the, the business said, and we'd also like to reduce profits. <laughs> <laughs> you know, they said, <laughs> We'd like to increase sales by 25% and also uh, no longer pay for someone to manage that. So, yeah. How, how's it going over there? You, you're, um, mm. you're, you're having a, a good 2021 too, huh? Mm-hmm. Little, little, lot of, lot going on in the Dan Benjamin universe. Yeah. Still, yeah. still. Still want to keep your head down about it, though. Yeah, I want to, you know. I'm not f- ready to talk about it. Not ready. I'm f- focusing, focusing in on the things that need to get done. And, uh, you know, there's a lot of those things. And I'm, I'm, I am not the kind of person I've found, John. There are a lot of people that I know that like mm-hmm. to talk about the things that are happening while they're happening. And then there's a, another kind of person who likes to reflect back on it later. And I feel like I'm more in the second camp of accomplishing the stuff I need to get done. And then later on is when I can go back and like re like reflect on everything. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah. You're right. It's like that. And we are, you know, we've got a lot to get done. Well, I would like to tell you about our sponsor. It's Brooklyn. And so whether you're an early bird like John Roderick, or you like to hit the snooze button, everyone deserves to sleep in ultimate Comfort, and that starts with your comforter. That's right. Brooklinen has comforters that are really awesome, and believe it or not, they make a big difference. Uh, I love the comforters. I love all the bedding that Brooklinen does, and that's what they do. They make beautiful, high-quality bedding, but they do home essentials as well, and they work directly with manufacturers to get you a fair price. There's no middlemen. There's no you know stores that you have to do, deal with. There's no markups. And it's great what they make, the quality, their comforters. They come in lightweight, all season, ultra warm styles to suit every type of sleeper and lifestyle. There's even a weighted comforter option because those are really awesome. Have you tried one of those? They do those. They do everything and a ton of different materials, eco-friendly, recycled down alternative. I mean, whatever your jam is, they're going to have something that will suit you. I have started using the Brooklyn and sheets, I guess a couple of years ago, and we've got a ton of sheets and I won't use them anymore. I will not use them. Normally what you do is you have a few sets of sheets and you just sort of rotate through them. Once you get to Brooklyn and sheets, you're not going to do that. You're going to want to buy another set of Brooklyn and sheets because they make such a big difference. I love them. And it's a difference you really can feel and experience. I don't know why, but having really nice, high quality sheets or a comforter on there can make a really big difference in how you feel about getting in a bed. And that's going to control and determine how well you sleep. It's a big thing. And you got to treat yourself, treat yourself to ultimate comfort with Brooklinen's comforter collection. Go to Brooklinen, that's spelled B-R-O-O-K-L-I-N-E-N.com. And when you get there, if you want to take a $25 off with a minimum of $100 purchase, okay, you're going to use the promo code ROADWORK, one word, Again, that's Brooklinen, B-R-O-O-K-L-I-N-E-N, brooklinen.com. 
$25 off with a minimum of $100 purchase. Roadwork is the word that you will use. So go check them out, brooklinen.com, Roadwork. Get yourself the discount. Get an awesome comforter. Get yourself some great sheets, other bedding essentials. It's what I use, and I hope that you love it too. Thanks very much to Brooklinen for making this show possible. Zoom, we're back in. We're back. Dan, you and I just went on a little bit of a sidebar for a while, just talking about our thoughts and feelings. Yeah. And had to, uh, it's had to impossible edit it out because it's it's personal, yeah. it's private. That's right. <laughs> it's impossible not to refer to it uh, though in the show because, you know, I think it's important. Um, I think it's important that people realize that they're, you know, that although we spend a lot of time on this show talking about what's going on in my life. Mm -hmm. You also are a fully fledged human being who has many things going on in your life that you don't tell stories about. Yes. I tell them maybe to to you off of the air and not on the show. Do you think people just assume, I I think John, that people, the general assumption is that I, um, uh, what's the, what's the show we've compared ourselves to in the past? The odd couple. I think they sort of see it like Uh that. Like I live a sort of mechanical life where I just, um, you know, everything is the same for me every day and I eat the same, you know, bowl of cornflakes every morning and the same peanut butter and jelly sandwich at lunch. And I, you know, at 3 p.m. sharp germaphobe. Right. And, and like, really, that's not, it's, it's the most interesting thing because it couldn't possibly be farther from the truth. Um, and, uh, you know about everything, but I don't talk about it. And I, and by simply not saying that that's wrong, the myth perpetuates itself. And, um, it's like, John, it's like when people find out or found out that I had like a tattoo or more, this people's minds exploded because they couldn't, they couldn't merge that concept with the concept of, I guess they people see me as a really like buttoned down, you know, straight laced sort of borderline nineteen fifties dad or something. I don't know what I don't know what it is, but that it's it's so fundamentally wrong and so not me at all, and yet uh, it it continues. And I well probably because I have no reason to change it, and it's fine. I don't mind that. I don't mind if people think that it's, it's perfectly fine, but it couldn't possibly be further than the truth. And it's cool. There's something cool about that. And, um, you know, it's, it's, it's weird because like you've hung out with me a number of times in person. And this is how, like, this is the way that I am when we're together. It's not like this is some kind of persona that I put on. I'm just omitting a lot of <laughs> a lot of stuff, you know? Um, I just don't talk about it. And it's, there's, you know, there's reasons why I don't talk about it. But part one of them is that I, t- I tend to be, like, um, private in a lot of ways. But yes. that there's also, yes. when I share something, I'm sharing it because I hope that it helps people. You know, if we talk about, you know, generalized anxiety disorder or OCD or whatever, my hope is that that somebody's going to hear it and maybe benefit from it or take have a, something that they can take away from it. But in as much as I love talking to other people and doing, <clears throat> excuse me, and doing interviews and and listening, 
um, and, and telling stories and stuff myself, I don't, when it comes to like, like my personal stuff, I don't know. I, I've never really shared that publicly too much. And I have a lot of stories. Maybe one day I will, you know, maybe it'll be like one of those things where like when, like it'll have to be released after I've passed away and everybody mentioned in it has passed away and like, you know, and then it's like to protect the innocent kind of thing, uh, all of that. Yeah. So it'll be a little while then I can talk about everything. What's what I, I don't know. You know, a lot of the people that listened to road work from the early days were mm-hmm. coming from a Dan, uh, universe rather than, you know, or following me from a, Merlin universe and a yeah. lot of the Merlin universe people are also Merlin and Dan universe. People. Yeah. Right. Back to work. Right. And so there are a lot of people here that have, that probably have a better sense of what your public reputation is than, than I do. Mm-hmm. But I have never worked with anyone in media that has as much speculation about who they are and what motivates them than you. What are you talking about? And I about? say that, I say that because other people in media uh-huh. spend a lot of t- when your name comes up, mm-hmm. it almost immediately sparks like some sotto voce, <laughs> like, I mean, what's the deal with Dan? What's I heard that Dan like sleeps in a Batman costume upside down <laughs> in his attic right, the- and you know, and like lives on the blood of human babies. And then the other person's uh-huh. like, no, 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 no. I was talking to somebody that knows all about the thing about Dan is that, and these are all people that, that know you that, that, um, you know, or, or know you by one kiss away. Mm-hmm. People that have worked with you, people, there's just, uh, the, the, the degree to which you are a cipher makes you a a topic of conversation. The problem is no one has any (laughs) real information. So it's always like, oh yeah, I heard. This is making me so happy right now. You've totally made my week. This is amazing. I didn't know any of this. I heard that Dan killed a man in Mexico. No, no, no. no, no, no. (laughs) Right, right, right. And, (laughs) and, um, and then because nobody has any information, those, those like sidebar conversations always kind of peter out. Mm-hmm. And a lot of people then, you know, if Merlin's anywhere around, then everybody turns and looks at Merlin mm-hmm. and Merlin, of course, gives nothing away. Well, he knows right? nothing. Merlin. Merlin knows less than anyone about me, gives, about you know, my Merlin stuff. does not. One of the things that characterizes Merlin as a, as a public person or as a friend is yeah. that he does not talk out of school. He does no. not like to gossip or no. betray no. confidence. Right. Right. So and a lot of the like, time his, his defense against that is like, don't even tell me about it. If you know, like yeah. that's how he doesn't have to worry about walking a line. He just doesn't want to know. He He's does. smart. He's very he smart does. to do that. Funny, but he does do that. Like, I don't want to know about it. Mm-hmm. Like, don't, you know, don't burden me with the responsibility of keeping this a secret. Right. It's smart. So that's anyway, so it's, but it's curious because, you know, on this show, you give very, little away and mm. i think there's a tendency for people to do to do as you say to think like well dan is just dan lives on soylent <laughs> and when he's not podcasting he just he goes into his like life support cocoon and waits to be reanimated <laughs> and it's like oh boy you have no idea <laughs> 
but I do think that people are curious and they do want to hear about it. And I know that you are reticent, but I think that you should, you should, and we've talked about this a lot, but that you should step into storytelling a little bit more just because you have a lot of stories to tell. But I also understand that all of your stories would burn down the world if you told them, mm-hmm. uh, if you told them un, unvarnished. So you do have to show a little discretion. Yeah. But oh, I, it's one some, of the things that someone show interesting. Someone right now, right now, it's breaking. No, it was two hours ago. Uh, someone named Joaquin Mellon says uh, on Twitter, uh, since Dan Benjamin seems to have ditched John for good, the best way to support John is here. And he has a link to your Patreon. And someone replies and says, he hasn't ditched John. They just released an episode for Roadwork Patreon supporters last week. And he says, I see. Thanks for the info. And I replied and said, I wonder what we're recording right this second. And I just tweeted that out. And then I retweeted it. And I said, uh, hold on. I retweeted what he said. And I said, actually, we're not. <laughs> this is so silly. Like, this is this is why I don't talk about anything. Yeah. This is because yeah. people don't understand anything and they read everything into it. And it's not um it's not accurate. It's not true. It's like so silly. This yeah. and anything you say, it's almost you better off saying nothing. Because if you say something, it comes across the wrong way. Well, let me just say that my the last And by the way, John, you, you know you know pretty much everything. You're the one person. So yeah. if, if anyone is really wants to know about me, they got to go to you and you're locked up yeah. like a vault. Yeah. Well, that's the thing. I, you know, I tell stories uh, uh, all the time. It, my daughter has started to say, she doesn't quite roll her eyes at me, but she will say, I'll be, I'll start some, you know, we'll be driving along and she'll go like, Oh, look at that telephone pole. And I'll say, you know, I actually climbed that telephone pole once Back in the 90s, there was a guy, and she'll go, Dad, you're doing it. You have a story about everything. And I'm like, well, yeah. And she's like, no, 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 I mean everything. Like, I can't even, I can't even point out a phone pole where, you don't, where you're not like, oh, yeah, one time. And I'm like, well? And she's like, I mean, I just don't, I just don't know. Like, uh, like. Have uh, have some things that you don't have a story about. And I was like, I can't help it. Uh, I know you can't. I can't help it. I do have a story about everything, but I don't tell. I don't tell secrets. I don't. I don't tell secrets. And I know that there there are some of your stories that I would tell in a second if you released me from my confidentiality. I know you. I know you would. I but know as, you want to, but, and you would probably tell them much better than I would anyway. But as long as I'm held by that confidentiality <laughs> agreement, I would never violate it, not even by implication. Yeah, I don't but, think you've told me anything much that you probably wouldn't share on the air, but I would never share it any with anyone ever. It would right. be up to you to share it. And even and and I wouldn't even repeat a story that you had shared on the air. I would just direct people to the episode <laughs> and, yeah. and then they could hear it from you because you're going to tell it better than me. Well, I, we've discussed it before, but that was a. You know, that was originally a defense mechanism on yes, my part. Yes, yes. Was just like, oh, I see. Like, everyone is so afraid of being gossiped about. People are so motivated by the fear of of being gossiped about. 
the fear of their secrets getting out. Yeah. That the only way to be free of that fear is to just tell everything all the time to right. everybody. I, I hear that. And you know, you know, for me, it's nobody, not. It's not like I don't want stuff to get out. I don't really have anything that is like I'd be like, oh no, that got out. It's more. It it it's more like, I, I I just like am private. I don't know. Like, yeah, no, no, I get it. I I I I absolutely get it, and I know people are private and. You know, I'm super private about what I'm, what I, like what there's one, there's I'm, one story, John, there's one story that I really, really, really want to tell. And it was something that completely changed my life. And I know that if I told it, it would have a very dramatic, and I, I've told you, it would have a very dramatic effect on other people and it would help them dr- really, like really help people. And I've heard other people tell stories that approach, but don't get anywhere near this story. And I've seen like incredible outpourings of support and like people who are like supportive of them and like changes their opinion of the person. And they like, they're like embraced by the internet community. I'm like, I would like to do all of that, but I can't tell the story because other people involved, it would affect them and it's personal yeah. to them too. And I can't, you know, I, there's just no way for me to, to talk about it without it potentially being a violation of privacy. And if somebody says to me, please don't tell anyone or don't talk about this, or this is between us or whatever, you know, then I, and in the same way that there were a couple of things that you've said where you're like, let's keep it between us. Like I would never talk about it. I would never share it. Right. And Right. Um, and so, you know, there's things, there's things like that, that, you know, I think everyone has those where a friend comes to you and tells you a story about, you know, you know, something that means something to them or someone else is involved in it, or, you know, the story about their grandparents that they don't want other people to know who knows, I don't know, but right, right. like, it's not. And like, I don't want people to get the idea that this is like sordid stuff, like that it's like no, crazy or no, horrible. No, no, it's just, no. per- it's just personal. It's just personal. Yeah. So it's like, what are you going to do? Well, it's personal, but you know, and I don't, without, without, yeah, <laughs> without talking about this thing that we're not going to talk about any more than we've already talked about it. Yeah. I, I, um, <clears throat> everything is political now. Yeah. And that's, a, that is a product of, of the way that social media has gone and the, and the, all the voids that it has filled in what used to be the larger world of media and culture and also the world of what used to be personal friendships and community. So much of that has gone not online, but specifically into the social media ecosystems that are, that have their own personalities. And so for you and me, what, what I've realized in the last month and what I've realized in the last 72 hours since I launched this Patreon that you referred to yeah, is that um, we've all been joking for uh, five to seven years that social media is toxic. And we, for the last four years, for sure, mm-hmm. we've known it's a terrible place. But I think, we've for, I think we don't fully understand how much it is 
presents itself as the actual world and how little it is the actual world. Hmm. So that, and, and I compared this the other day to, um, quitting drugs. When I was on drugs, I believed that everyone that mattered in the world was also on drugs and the people that weren't on drugs didn't matter because the people that weren't on drugs were blind to the truth and didn't have access to what was real and cool and necessary and meaningful. They were just living in their dull gray lives. And the, the only people that mattered to me or to anyone were the creative, uh, influential, powerful force that, uh, was this culture of people that were, that were on drugs, Mm -hmm. the makers of things, the, the tortured artists, the, um, the people who were really sucking the marrow from life and living as closest to the edge as they could. And when I quit doing drugs, one of the hardest things for me was, uh, just imagining because I quit doing drugs, but I did not stop thinking that. And that feeling of like, well, now I'm outside Mm -hmm. of the, of the world that matters, the creative class, the people that are living close to the bone. And so what am I now? Just some housewife. (laughs) And it took me a long time, even after I was really engaged with people who were more creative and more, uh, like fully, living and making incredible things, even after I was in it, I still was like, well, yeah, but I mean, this is all incredible. And I never was part of a community like this before, but, but you know, like I'm not, um, I'm not like a comet arcing across the sky. Mm-hmm. And it took a long time to realize like, Oh, wait a minute. I was just a loser. And, uh, <laughs> and all of the, the drugs that I did, like that was all just bullshit. Um, that was not healthy or good. I wasn't strong. I didn't like, I am living way, way further out on the wing than I ever was before. But with social media, I was taught, I was texting with Dave Hill, the comedian earlier today, and Dave got booted off of Twitter last year, the year before for making a joke about Donald Trump that in one of the many times that Twitter tried to make a show of having any control or any standards, um, they permanently banned him for what was clearly a joke. And, you know, Twitter is just so good. Permanently bans Donald Trump the last week of his presidency. Like, good job, heroes. (laughs) You know, well done, you guys. Nicely played, but you know, in one of those purges, when they were getting rid of a bunch of alt-right people, they also got rid of Dave Hill just because they're fucking idiots. And so Dave has been Dave, who's a, uh, a personality, uh, occupying, you know, a lot of space that overlaps with me. Although Dave is actually a comedian, a hilarious comedian who stands on stage and does comedy that he has written and he's a guitar player and a much better guitar player than I am. But like, you know, we, we met coming through the rye many years ago where we, uh, we see each other every year a few times, but you know, I feel a closeness with him that belies the fact that we don't, we haven't spent that much time together really. Um, 
just showbiz time. But, mm-hmm. but talking to him and realizing that we both, like most people, thought that our careers, most people in, in the arts, mm-hmm. felt that our careers were, uh, without Twitter, how could you promote a thing? How could you make a thing in the world? How are you going to find an audience? How are you going to know what's going on? How are you going to be part of the conversation? Right. And Dave's been off it for a while. I'm now, I have been off it for a month. And uh, it hasn't, like neither of us, all it has done in being off of Twitter is taken the, the toxicity and the stress of, and I'm not just talking about like the stress for me of the last month of being hated on, mm-hmm. but the stress that just goes along with waking up every morning, logging onto Twitter and being in that cesspool and, and frantically craving attention and struggling for likes and, and throwing all your wit into a void and, and then trying to consume the wit of other people that you really like who are also throwing their wit into a void and you know them personally and you like them and you're watching them also struggle to keep their heads above water in this ecosystem of, of, uh, that, that, that naturally rewards controversy and negativity. And, and so, you know, I launched a Patreon, as you mentioned, two days ago, mm-hmm. three on Monday. So three days ago. And it was, you know, it was just partly like the, the, the loss of the friendly fire podcast, you know, it, it made me realize that, Oh, I'm insecure. Like my, I am. You need something that's just yours. You need something that's yours. That's a revenue generator that you can, uh, that you can rely on so that if one of these other shows goes away and I'm very intimately familiar with that, John, because if you remember, I used to do a lot of shows with other people and the way that it worked is I would, I would, um, I would interview them on my interview show. And if it went well, really well, and we hit it off and there was good, you know, like chemistry, then I would propose to the person. I'd say, you know, that was really fun. What do you think about maybe doing like a regular show? And the people would either say yes or no. And the ones who said, yes, we went on to do shows and then, then they, you know, they might've been podcasting already and they might not have been. And in that case, they became podcasters and continued on with me and then did their own shows and went on, did other things. And, um, you know, it, it would affect me significantly financially if I had like a show that was successful and people were paying to, uh, you know, to, to sponsor the show. And then the show ends for whatever reason. Maybe it ended because we were bored. Maybe it ended because they wanted to do something different. Maybe, who knows? Um, lots of reasons why shows end. And they're not always even interesting reasons. Sometimes, you know, we've had shows on 5x5 five five that I was on and many that I wasn't on that ended because somebody got a new job at a company like Apple where they couldn't talk anymore. Or, you know, they they became a mom and they don't want to podcast because they're, you know, raising a child now or whatever. Like there's a lot of reasons why shows can end and, um, you know, not, not, you can't, I guess what I'm hearing you saying and what I felt too, is that you can't rely on something being an income stream for you. If it's actually in reality, reliant on someone else showing up, you know, and if, 
you know, if, if, if one of these shows that you were doing came to an end, it's not just like, oh, bummer, your podcast is over. I guess I'll go to my regular job. This is your regular job. This is my regular job. And not having something else cooking that you can rely on, like your Patreon, means that you could potentially become cut off from your own income based on somebody else's feelings about whether they want to record a show or not. The income wa was was part of it, but you know, I loved doing Friendly Fire mm -hmm. creatively. Mm -hmm. I just loved the space. I loved the the concept of the thing. I loved what it had become, the community that that built up around it. The the contrast between doing a show with like m millennials that had a very different. By the way, John, have you world. have you have you looked at your Patreon? Well, I'm I, so what I did was I set the. I mean, you're making really good money instantly. Well, what's interesting about it is that what like the, friendly fire going away was a financial hit, mm -hmm. but what it what worried me, what was the biggest hurt was that this was a thing that I thought was my art that I can't do without those guys. I mean, can I just say this on the air? You're you're making six figures from your Patreon right now. That I put up three days ago. Yeah. And the thing about that is that I what I what I what scared me the most was was not that, you know, because it because canceling that show was not it wasn't just those two dudes. It was the world they live in the, 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 the Twitter ecosystem, but also the max fun mm -hmm. culture and the perception that that culture has about itself and how it services its fan community and what the values are, what the, and so what happened was in the process of me being canceled, which was 95% irrelevant it, uh, to me, mm -hmm. And irrelevant, you know, like three days later it was gone and nobody's life was changed and nobody's better or worse. You know, like I don't, I don't think that cancel culture is anything really. I'm not, I won't rail about it. I don't want, it's not a lesson. It's just a storm that, that comes and goes. It's the, it's like a, it's like a, a the eye of Jupiter. And, um, and yet what got taken from me was this, uh, this child that I had raised from mm -hmm. birth. Mm -hmm. And I realized like this show that I do with you, the show that I do with Merlin and the show that I do with Ken are these children that I have that are just like my record albums, things that I pour myself into. And then I expect them to grow and live and I think of the back catalog, for instance, as things that I want to survive. And when Friendly Fire went away, there was this whole sidebar conversation where it's just like, well, are we going to keep, keep the old episodes up? And I was like, what are you fucking talking about? The old episodes? Yes, they should be up. I want them to, I don't want, I want them to be up. What are you talking about? Available forever. Like. These are things that, that we made. They're like my albums. I never want them to go out of print. You would take them down for what? I mean, I don't understand why the show got canceled, but take the old episodes down. So the, the, 
the fact that I realized that my creative life was something that could be taken from me where I didn't have a, like my voice got, uh, canceled. Mm-hmm. And in the, in that whole process, I was getting these hundreds of messages from people like, we're with you. I'm with you. Like, and it wasn't about cancel culture. It wasn't there. Very few of those messages were angry at anybody. Most of them were just like, hi, I know you're going through something right now. I just want you to know that I'm with you over and over until it finally got through to me. And I was like, oh shit, there are people to whom I'm responsible. Like it, this isn't just about like, I lost this thing. Other people feel that loss too. And they're my people there. This is my, the people that listen to road work. Like there's no one that listens to road work that I don't consider my people. How could you listen to this show? How could you even tolerate this show? If you weren't my people. And if I don't, and if I didn't owe you something for that, you know, and that has nothing to do with Twitter. It's not the larger world. It's not me trying to communicate to, um, the, the, the big world. It's, it is an actual world that's small and, and real, right? The, and and I can trust them with my stories. I can trust them with my, uh, with these children, uh, that I've made because they want also to care for them. Right. And I, and I, in that moment I realized, oh fuck, I've got a, I had a very large audience on friendly fire. Some of the people that listened to friendly fire just hated me. You know, they just hated me. They were there for the, uh, for the hot take about that was, that was coming at me from a different angle. And there were people that were just like, okay, boomer. And there were people that felt like I was a, I was a fascist because, you know, because I both sides the battle of Okinawa or something, you know, but there were a lot of, and uh, tens of thousands of people that that show went away. And now what is the connection between us severed? Am I, uh, do I, is it one of those things where I'm on a boat or they're on a boat and, and I'm waving goodbye and they just sail off or I sail off. So putting that Patreon up was, was the only thing I could think of to say, I need to make a place where there is a community that I can communicate with directly where I'm not, where I don't have a co-host, where I don't, where the thing can't get canceled. And this is all based on the assumption that Patreon doesn't go out of business, you know, or that, that there's not some catastrophe, um, where the platform disappears. But it's the first thing I've done since the last time I made a long winter's record Mm -hmm. where I, I said, you know what? This is a place. This is, this is a place that's, that's mine. It's not in conjunction with anyone. It's not, no one can take it away. 
as long as the internet is up, like here we can gather. And in the last 72 hours, just the comments in the, in, on the little message place, cause I'd never been on Patreon, Dan, we have a Patreon that you and I have, we've contributed a lot of content to our Patreon supporters. Mm-hmm. Yeah in the form of our after show, which is like a completely second podcast. <laughs> that right. is, the, the after show has got to be, you know, like right up there with the number of hours of our, of our above show, you know, our, our public show. But I'd never been on the app. I never really looked at it, but it's like an old school message board. Mm-hmm. And there's this message, there's this community that's just, it was always there and it just, it just materialized out of nowhere. The comments are all not just supportive, but personal people are writing long paragraphs. They're all smart. They have a lot in common. There are people from around the world and they all know the, they all know the language because they've listened to the shows. So if somebody makes a reference and it, the thing is, it's not, it's not just people throwing references at each other because they don't have to, if they say something if they say something about Dan Benjamin, everybody already knows mm-hmm. that Dan lives, uh, he sleeps in a Batman co- costume right, and right. he's super weird, lives on Soylent. Uh-huh. So this Patreon experience and the experience of the last month, it has, in, it has gotten inside my head in the, in the most positive way in the sense that I have struggled my whole life to find my place. And I have always imagined that my place was as a big deal somewhere mm-hmm. that I would get into big deal. I would get into the big time and I had no plan. Once I got there, I didn't have, I wasn't trying to pitch a show. You know, I've been watching a lot of episodic television because uh, we all are. And, you know, I watch these shows like um, the, the one that I, that I just finished, um, Counterpart, and Giri Haji before that, where I got to the end of the show and I really needed to know about the creators. And that never happens. I never cared about who made The Sopranos. Mm-hmm. But I needed to know who these writers were and who the show creators were. And I went and researched them and they're just, they were just people. They weren't rich. They had never, they, it's, they hadn't worked on any Batman movies. They were basically people my age who I, and I have no idea how you would go about putting the resources together to put a show out and to make these shows. Counterpart really affected me. I really liked it. And just made by some people. And then I realized one of the writers was somebody that I knew, you know, someone in the, in my, uh, nerd, uh, infrastructure and realizing like, Oh, there are people who would make such an incredible piece of television as this spending a lot of money and involving a lot of people and a lot of brain power. And they're, they're not, big shots. They're not the show, you know, only did two seasons. They didn't get rich. Nobody knows their name. 
they're just show creators and they're going to go on and make another show. And it's, and it's just, it's their job. And they live in LA, I'm sure in a, in a bungalow somewhere. Hopefully they can afford to live there even after having made this, this show that I think should have rewarded them with millions of, you know, maybe, maybe it did, maybe it didn't, but realizing like, Oh shit, I have a community. Remember that quote? Somebody said, all you need is 1000 fans. Right. Do you yeah. remember that? Yeah. Somebody yeah. You said, need like you a, need... was it a hundred? It was a thousand. If you have a thousand true fans, you could do anything and, and yeah. you've proven that right here. I have a, I mean, I have a thousand true fans there there and they have been there for me over and over. And I've never fully appreciated it because I've always thought like, okay, well I've got a thousand true fans and that means that I have 50,000 fans that are like in varying stages of, of totally there. Some of them, you know, half there and that leverages me into a situation where I can stand on the stage with Dave Hill and feel like I belong here with him. Um, because you know, even though he's got 70,000 fans and the two of us are both trying to get on the first slot of a show that's being put on by somebody that's got a hundred thousand fans. What I didn't ever realize was no, the thousand true fans are not the gateway to something else. They are the thing. They're the audience. And I don't feel, uh, I don't feel beholden to them in the sense of like, oh shit, I have to cater to the, the people here. Mm -hmm. Like I did about the Max Fun audience or the Joko Cruz audience, the broader audience right. of people that were fans of the thing. And so fans of me by association, these are the fans of me that they're like, Hey, don't cater to us, bro. Just keep doing what you're doing. Like we're here and we don't want you to, I mean, the number of messages I've gotten who, that are like, Hey, sorry to bug you. I don't need anything. You don't have to reply. I just needed to tell you, like, I'm here for you. And that's, that character kind of characterizes the tone of everyone that every one of those thousands of thousand fans of mine, they're all like, Hey, I don't, you know, please don't make any special effort, just, you know, keep, keep on keeping on and I'll be here and realizing that I can turn my back on that, that struggle of trying to appeal to a million people and just quiet down and do what I do confident in the knowledge that there are that thousand people or 2000 people that are just like, yep, yep. That's, you know, like we want that from you. And so we're here, we're here mm -hmm. and we're not going to leave because you did something. Uh, you mischose some words. We're not going to leave because somebody else is mad at you and we're afraid of them. Uh, and I, and I just realized like podcasting, like this is all happening for most people in headphones. Right. They never have to admit it. They can sit in the room with someone that hates me and be just listening and like, um, 
and and basically we're communicating. And all of that is such a. I've been so stressed in the last month, like the most oh, stressed I've even, ever been. Can't even believe it. Just con, just constricted. All my organs constricted. Every, you know, I was sleeping four hours a night, just waking mm. up in the middle of the night, like, what the fuck, what the fuck? I don't, you know, I didn't have anywhere, didn't know what to do. And to, to relieve that stress is one thing, but this, this sort of dawning realization is relieving some, and I mean, it's early days, right? I mean, this, this is a storm that's been in me since I was six years old the storm of feeling like I needed to be bigger than I was. Right. And to feel those clouds start to blow. I mean, it's very windy right now in, on whatever exoplanet I live on. <laughs> it's very windy and the skies are, are different shades of black and gray and, you know, but the weather's changing and, and it's like it's the it's like the weather changed when I quit doing drugs, where it was just like, oh whoa, there's the sky. I thought the sky looked like this because I was never out during the day, and now I'm out in the day, and there's the sky, and that's what it looks like. So I've never felt more hopeful. And the the fact that the Patreon has money attached to it, you know, and, and in some ways feels like it adds a symbolism to it but i'm but i don't think that and i said it last night you know i'm tr- i'm struggling to try and communicate my feelings because it's like i this patreon is not a it's not it, it doesn't send a message to anyone it's not about the outside world it's not about going back to twitter and saying see it's not about it's not about twitter at all i have not mentioned it on twitter I haven't been on Twitter in a month. This this site that supposedly I couldn't have a career without it. Right. I have not yeah, made right. any mention. Yeah, right, because we talked about that last time that 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 like you couldn't get rid of it because if you did you wouldn't be able to promote anything you do or yeah. do anything how would at I, all. Or, yeah. How would I get out there? How would I get more fans, you know, if I'm not on Twitter? I haven't mentioned it at all. And you know the the that thousand people showed up in basically 48 hours and it's just like, wow, you know, and it's all wheat, no chaff. There's no one there. That's like, Oh, I just happened along her. Let's see what this is. You know, it's all people that are like here for it. So what a, what a validation and that, you know, in a way I don't, and it's not a validation of anything. It's not a validation, validation of any mentality. It's a validation that the world is not social media and the world is a good place. Still, you can be a good person in a good place, making good things like the world really, the out that, that the social media world is the toxicity And I, you know, we all have, we're all still struggling. Mm-hmm. There's nobody that's, there's, I don't think there's a single person probably that, that, uh, joined that Patreon that isn't struggling in some way. Yeah. Right. How are you going to listen to this show if you're not struggling? Right. 
I mean, I'm sure there are people that are like, no, I'm fine. I, things are good. I just like listening to this show. But a lot of us, you know, are, are struggling in, in a way that isn't that, that doesn't have to be catastrophic. So I don't know. I mean, I'm on the, I, I'm, I, it's not like I'm on the verge of crying because the only, I mean, I do cry at Latter-day Saints commercials. You know, I'm sentimental. <laughs> I think one of the hardest, one of the things I'm worried about most is that, um, that when I post on this Patreon, because I now feel like I'm communicating, I'm going to be making art for these people or, or rather I'm going to be making things for these people, whether it's art or not, I don't know. But like, I'm a sentimental person bordering on mawkish uh, about certain things. And I don't want to, I don't want to have my reaction on this Patreon to just be like, Oh my God, you guys. Cause I'm, cause I'm not like that. But, but I mean, and I, there's a certain amount of worry that I'm like, okay, well now I actually am communicating directly with my audience. Um, I hope that I'm not dumb. I hope that when, when everybody sees me not talking to Dan Benjamin, that the things that I want to talk about aren't just like kind of dumb and lazy. Right. Um, but what a what a crazy month it's been and the idea that i would that it would be life affirming is the furthest thing from my mind 3 weeks ago when i was just like i never for a moment was like how am i going to survive this i was just like this hurts and i don't and it hurts in like a new way. Why am I, what did I, how did I start 2021 finding a new way for me to hurt? I thought I already had all right, the ways seriously. that you could hurt, you know, yeah. like every kind of way you can hurt. I or, I thought I already had like a whole file cabinet f for it. Right. And it was like, fuck a new way, like a super bad way to hurt. Uh, and I, you know, uh, the, the turnaround isn't complete. I mean, I definitely still have to, I found a game during the period where I was like, I just need something. I found this game. It's the weirdest game. It's like, it's, it's called, it's called block puzzle. It's just an app and it uses the shapes of Tetris, but it's not Tetris. Right. It uses Tetris shapes and it's kind of, you know, it's like conceptually Tetrisy, but it doesn't have, there's no movement. It's not like shapes appear and you have to deal with them. It's slow. It's not timed in other words. And I try out games all the time and I'm always like garbage, you know, I'll, I'll play it for, for three minutes and I'm like garbage. But I found this game and I was, cause I love Tetris. Yeah. I was like, Oh, I'll try this out Tetris, some kind of Tetris. And it wasn't Tetris. And it became within two days, a game that I would happily play for five hours a day. Just like, okay, I got some shape and I move shape <laughs> over here. And Oh, it took away some stuff. Okay. I put a shape <laughs> over here. Oh yeah. Now whoop, 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 go put a shape here. And yep. Yeah, uh, I've been playing it for a week and a half and, 
walking around the house and I'm like, oh, what do, what do I got? I got 20 minutes here. What should I do? Oh, maybe I'll go put some shapes together over in a little shape game. So I need to not let the phone do its thing, which is like, oh, not on social media anymore. Mm-hmm. I still want you to look at me for five hours a day. So what if I found a little shape game for you? But boy, otherwise, Dan, there's there's a weight that's been lifted from me. Well, yeah, I mean, you're you're gonna survive now. I'm gonna survive. You've got a full time job doing this stuff that you said you're gonna do on the Patreon, and you have an income now from the people who love you and want to support you and want to see that you are okay. Yeah, and no one can steal. But listen, it. listen. No, yeah, no one can steal it. No one can cancel it away from you by not wanting to do a show it's it's good and um you know it's you you need to know if you don't know and just listening to you talk i feel that you do but it needs to be said like most people can't do that most people can't say hey thousand fans all of you give me you know 10 bucks a month and then all of a sudden you're making a six-figure salary from that no very few people can do that if i could do that uh, I would be doing it. My Patreon has uh, five or six hundred dollars a month, <laughs> and and you know, that's um, that's something I'm still grateful for. But I, there's no way that I could say, "Hey, I need your help," and and do that. Like that's incredible. And you need to understand how much people care about you and love you. I think you do, but you just need to know how. Like that's amazing. And and acknowledging to myself that like it is a it is something that I built. Yes. That that I never And that you don't need Twitter for it, you don't need Instagram no. for it, you don't need a co host for it, you don't need a record label for it. It's 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 you. That's the thing, right? It's not it didn't come about through Twitter. Right. It did not it is I don't owe Twitter this or you know, who I owe it to is Merlin and you and Ken, um, because you guys and, you know, and Ben and Adam, you guys poured into me your time and effort. You know, you uh, all helped midwife it. And, you know, in Merlin's case, like introduced me to even what, well, first of all, Merlin introduced me to what a website is, but then Merlin introduced me to what a podcast is and Mm -hmm. Merlin, you know, Merlin will always have people that are in all the way with Merlin and Merlin shared those people with me. He shared them with you. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. And, um, and then the, the portion of the people that, um, that are just drawn to Merlin's energy that somehow, and this is the wonderful thing, how you can be drawn to Merlin's energy and also drawn to my energy (laughs) energies, which are on completely different spectra in the cult. You know, Merlin is such a red and I'm such a blue or whatever. Uh, but there are, there are a lot of those people, but then, you know, the people that came from my music, the people that have come through the, through the years, uh, 
but to be able to say like, this isn't a thing that, um, what that, that I, um, this, this is a thing that happened absolutely organically and all it needed to do was to be given a vessel that it could, that where it could take shape, right? It's a, it's a, we, we, we do it with our after show here. Gary's van on, on Facebook, uh, is a place like that. There are a thousand people there. You know, it's the thousand people, the omnibus site, the friendly fire site, all those on Facebook and on discord and on Reddit, you know, there are places where those, where that group of fans tries to congregate and say, well, we're here, but you know, now we're on Facebook and none of us like it on Facebook. We don't want to, why are we on Facebook? Well, it's the only place. And I know not everybody's going to go to this Patreon and not everybody wants to be on a on a old fashioned message board and not everybody wants to read my blog posts because it's not 2003, but it kind of is like, I just wanted to read blog posts. It turns out. And I didn't want to read them on Facebook. I didn't want to read them linked to on Twitter. I didn't want to read them on medium. I just wanted to go read, a, read somebody's blog. So whew. Oof. I just think this is like amazing. Like I saw you done the Patreon. I hadn't looked at it until before the show. I'm like, wow, that's amazing. John's going to be all right. Yeah. Yeah. It'll be all right. 